Good morning. Welcome to worship at First Presbyterian Church of Columbus, Georgia. We're glad that you're here to join us as we worship God by offering our prayers and singing songs and listening to scripture. Please come in with us that we may worship God together. First reading this morning comes from the prophecy of Isaiah in the Old Testament. Let us listen that we may hear what God will share with us. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and strip kings of their robes, to open doors before him and the gates shall not be closed. I will go before you and level the mountains. I will break the pieces in the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasure of darkness and the riches hidden in secret places so that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I will call your name. I surname you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I arm you, though you do not know me, so that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make wheel and create woe. I, the Lord, do all these things. This is the word of the Lord. The Gospel reading this morning comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 22. Let us listen that we may hear what God will say. Then the Pharisees went and they plotted to entrap Jesus in what he said. So they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are sincere and teach the way of God in accordance with truth and show deference to no one for you do not regard people with partiality. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why are you putting me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. Then Jesus said to them, Whose head is, is this and whose title? And they answered, the emperors. And he said to them, give therefore to the emperor the things that are the emperors, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard this, they were amazed, and they left him, and they went away. The word of the Lord. I must say that was a better response than last week. Last week, the gospel lesson was about the, par was the parable of the, of the wedding, and the wedding, uh, the king had a banquet, and no one came, and so he went out to the streets, and he invited everybody to come in, and then when, he, when the king came in, he saw someone that was not fully dressed in whatever the attire should be, and so he threw him out. Do you know that one? Do you remember that one? 
Please say you remember it. Well, anyway, when I said the word of the Lord then, it was kind of like, oh, thanks be to God. Yeah, sometimes it's like that, you know. And, and we're in a stretch of, of gospel readings of, of these conversations of Jesus or these teachings of Jesus. They're tough. It's tough stuff. The, the scenario, the setup is that beginning in Matthew 21, it's the story of Jesus going into Jerusalem the week before what we call Holy Week, the week before Easter, and he rides in triumphantly. People wave palm branches. They, they sing, hallelujah, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They are so excited. And then Jesus goes into the temple. And what does he do in the temple? He sees all these animals to be sacrificed, and he sees money changers changing uh, turning things over and he turns it all over. He, he lifts the table. He throws them out. And he says, get out. This is not the way the temple is supposed to be. It is not supposed to be a, a place of, of commerce. It is supposed to be a place of devotion and service. And then he begins teaching and he teaches a couple of, shares a couple of parables about vineyards. A man, a vineyard owner had two sons. He tells one to go out and do some work, and the son says, "No, I'm not going to do it." And the other one, and he tells the other one to uh, go and do the work, and the son says, "Sure, Dad, I'll do it." But it turns out that the one who said he wouldn't go is the one who went, and the one who said he would go is the one who didn't. Who's doing the right thing there? It's a tough, tough story. And then this parable about the the wedding—it's it, this is tough stuff. This Jesus talk is is hard, and. We continue today with a, another scenario. Taxes have always been a big boogeyman in, in our na national history, and really, I guess, in, in world history. Um, in our national history, before there was the nation of the United States, when there was just simply British colonies in the 1760s and 1770s, the British Parliament in London passed a, ta passed a series of taxes on sugar and on stamp and on tea, covered a lot of other things as well, but those are the names that we remember, the sugar tax, the stamp tax, the uh, tea act. And, and if there were Facebook memes from the 1760s and 1770s, it would have read, no taxation without representation. That's still a phrase that we use because it came from that time, but, but we would know it from that way as well. There were protests against all three of these acts and all of the taxes that they imposed, but one has lit the fire of our popular imagination and it still resides with us today. And that was the response in Boston to the tea tax, the tea act. In 1773, there were ships in Boston that had tea in their cargo holes. They were going to be offloaded and sold and taxed. And a group of citizens of the city dressed up as Indians, and they went out to the ships, and they threw the tea. They took the cargo, and they threw the tea overboard. And it is celebrated as a great act of resistance and uh, standing up against oppression, and it is part of our national history and part of our national story. At the same time, for them to do that, they 
violated private property because the tea was owned by somebody. They transgressed on private property. They trespassed. And I'm not trying to defend the tax or the tax or, or anything there. I'm saying that how we see those events is shaped by how we have experienced it and how we have been told about it. So taxation is something that gets really to the core of us. And we all know, I didn't read the paper this morning, but I'm sure if I had, or I didn't check the news feeds on the internet, but I'm sure if I had, I would have seen some article about tax reform moving forward in our nation's capital because it's all in the buzz, the buzz that, that you hear when you turn on the media, it's however you turn it on. Taxes are not popular, and that is true. And they were not popular in the Roman day as well. They were not popular when Jesus lived. There were lots of taxes that the Jews in Palestine pay. They paid a temple tax to maintain the temple. It was a phenomenal piece of public work, and it needed sustenance. And so that, it was, that is how it was supported. There were also taxes on land. There were taxes on trades. There were all kinds of taxes. But there was one tax that was particularly despised by the Jews. It was called the imperial tax. And it was a tribute, as in a taxation. It was, a, it was a, something that was extracted from the population to be paid directly to the emperor, also known as Caesar. And what that did was that funded the Roman army. And the people of Palestine at that time were under occupation. The Roman army occupied their land, and so they were paying to support this invading army. It was not popular. Caesar in Roman mythology, not just mythology, but in Caesar in, in, in Roman life, the emperor, as he was called, was defined as a god. To say, hail Caesar, was to say, hail God, was to give credibility and, and, and uh, acclamation to a divine being. Yet, the Jewish people in the Ten Commandments know that you are not supposed to have any other gods. It's the number one. You shall have no other gods before you. And you are not to make any images of anything that you worship. So you are not to make images of God. That's the core of that faith. And it's the core of the Christian faith too. It's pretty much basic Christianity. There is no other God other than God. So the religious leaders were coming to Jesus and they were, they were testing him. And they, were, they had heard his parables, they had seen his actions, and they wanted to find a way to, to get at him because they realized that he had popularity that they did not have. And they decided they would test him this way. You heard the reading. They said, is it lawful for us to pay a tribute to this one who is defined as God? Is it? 
Do we pay our tax for our occupation? Another way of asking that was they were trying to say, who is in charge? Is God in charge? Or is the Roman emperor in charge? Or who else is in charge? Do the things that we make imprints of, do the things that we um, see out there as symbols, are they where our loyalty lies, our ultimate loyalty, our absolute loyalty above any other affinity? Are they the things that we pledge to or is there something else? It was a trap. It was designed as an either-or question. If Jesus says, it is not lawful to pay the tax, it is not lawful according to the Jewish law to pay the tax, then he runs afoul of the Roman authorities who would come down on him and grab him up for inciting a riot. But if he says, um, it is lawful, then the crowds who have supported him, they will say, well, wait a minute, we don't like this tax, we are not with him on this, and he would lose support. So they were trying to decide, it was trying to get him to go either way. But Jesus answers in such a way that the Pharisees are amazed. That's how the scripture responds. They, when they heard Jesus' response, they were amazed. And that word amazed, pretty much no matter what English language version you use, that word amazed is there. It's there in the, even in the original language, that notion of amazement, of, of wonder, of being confounded by the answer they were given. No doubt the people who were asking the questions, the Pharisees, they didn't like the answer that Jesus gave but they were amazed. Jesus had been amazing people throughout his whole ministry. The disciples were amazed, that same word. The disciples were amazed when Jesus stilled the storm. The, dis- the crowds were amazed when a man was healed from convulsions. The crowds were amazed when Those who were blind were made to see and those who could not walk were enabled to walk. The disciples and the crowds were amazed. They stood in utter disbelief almost. How could this be? How can this wondrous thing be? And then the authorities come and they ask Jesus, well, do we pay this tax to the emperor or not? And the answer he gives amazes them. He is amazing. We have a song about that, you know? Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. Amazing, God's amazing grace in Jesus Christ. In the Isaiah reading today, it tells of Cyrus, 
Cyrus was the king of Persia. Persia is what we know of today as Iran. That's the present day Iran. And the children of Israel, some 60 years before, had been defeated in battle by the Babylonians. And they had been taken, a lot of them had been taken to live in exile in Babylon, which is what we know of as Baghdad today, along the, the rivers Tigris and Euphrates. They'd just been picked up from where they were and relocated. And then Cyrus comes along, Persia rises up as a power, and they battle Babylon and they defeat Babylon. And in that passage, it says, God says to Cyrus, I'm going to make you my agent. I'm going to give you my imprimatur, my keys. I'm going to have you do the work of sending the children of Israel back to their homeland, to the land of their promise. I'm going to do that for you. You don't know me. It's quite clear if you read, if you reread it again several times. You don't know me, the words of the prophet Isaiah sharing God's vision says, you don't know me, Cyrus, but you're going to do what I need you to do. Quite an amazing territory. One who is not a follower of God delivers the children of Israel to their home. The Lord can use people with whom we disagree about profound matters to do what is the very real work of the Lord. That's what the story of Cyrus shares with us. There is, this is not something that we just sort of willy-nilly say, well, I'll justify myself that way or not. No, no, that's not what it is. We need to reflect and think what God's purposes are and to pay attention to God's desire for salvation and hope. God made this world and God made it good, and God's desire is to lift it up. John three sixteen and 17, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes will be saved. God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world. God sent the Son into the world so that the world might be saved. Early on, when I was in graduate school, I had graduated from college and I, had, I did not initially seek to become a pastor or a minister. I decided that I was going to be a, a professor or a teacher of history. So I went to graduate school and I um, was taking a class, several classes, and, and one of my professors asked me one night after class, he, he said, Joel, I want to have coffee with you. Well, you know, it's pretty, it's pretty cool to be asked by your professor to go have coffee, right? I mean, you know, that's, that was good. I was excited about it. I wasn't sure what he wanted to say to me, but I was excited about it. And we went and, you know, anything with coffee, as far as I'm concerned, anything with coffee is good. So we, we met one morning in the cap, one of the cafeterias on campus, and I don't remember exactly what words he used, but the message was something like this. Joel, is there something else you can do besides being a teacher? 
yeah. A little bit of heart, a little bit crestfallen there. Now, don't get me wrong. I was not dispossessed. I had not been sent into captivity. So the analogy might not fit. But I do remember having a sense that my world was shifting. What I thought I ought to do was being called into question. Now, I got to tell you, I did not take his advice, at least not initially, because I pursued my degree. I got my PhD. I wrote my book. I did my stuff. But later on, I began to have a sense of calling that I wanted, I wanted to find fulfillment in serving as a pastor to churches. I didn't know exactly what that would look like or how I would get there. But I knew that's what I needed to do. And then I began to think back on that conversation. Is there something else you need to be doing? And it took on a completely different different light. What we do is not simply a human effort. What we do, no matter what you do, for a living or for your avocation, all of that is wrapped up by God's goodness and God's grace. All of that is part of our discernment. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. I was amazed. I am amazed. I continue to be amazed. Feeling amazed by God's presence is powerful. It would be easy, it would have been easy for Jesus to fall into the trap that the Pharisees laid for him when he was asked that question about taxes. But he didn't. He didn't. Jesus amazed the Pharisees. And Jesus is amazing because he calls us to pay attention where we are. Jesus' statement on taxes is really about focus. Where are you focused? And what are you focused on? There may be things in your life and in my life that we would prefer not to do. Yet there are occasions when doing what we don't want to do may be necessary, maybe even right. At the same time, we do not need to confuse our own sense of what is right or our own sense of calling for what everybody else ought to be doing. Allowing ourselves to be amazed by God in Christ is so wonderful. Trusting in Jesus, allowing that others will see through us that amazing grace is pretty awesome and scary. We never need to forget the place where God's amazement comes from and the ways in which we are privileged to share it. 
We love because God first loved us. That is amazing. Thanks be to God. Amen. It's been a privilege to join you this day in worship. We're glad that you were here. First Presbyterian Church seeks to serve and minister in the name of Jesus Christ. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord be kind and gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you with favor. Go in peace as you love and serve God.